Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made the chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of Monday, April 13th, 2020. We hope everyone had the best Easter and Passover weekend possible given the circumstances that many of us are still dealing with trying to prevent COVID-19 from spreading. On this podcast episode, we'll discuss Major League Baseball's new proposed plan of having the 2020 season played under the spring training leagues. How would this look for the league itself and how it would impact the Chicago White Sox if baseball does return in 2020? You, our listeners, also had questions for us, which we'll answer at the end of the show in P.O. Sox. There are a few baseball books that have been released this spring covering a widespread of topics about the sport. One area that interests me the most is the current state of scouting and how teams are trying to find the next superstar. And that's what drove my interest in the new release from Triumph Publishing, Future Value, the battle for baseball's soul and how teams will find the next superstar. This is by far the most in-depth insight on how teams draft, how they approach international signings, how they scout both in the minor leagues and even a little bit in the major leagues, and how analysts come to the scouting grades that they give on players. Joining us is one of the authors of this fantastic book, and he's a good friend of the podcast from Fangraphs.com. It's Eric Loggenhagen. And hello, Eric. Thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, Josh. Thanks for having me again. So congratulations for writing this book. Uh, This podcast is released on the day that the book is officially released. And uh, you co-wrote this with Kylie McDaniel, who is now with ESPN. Can you share with us the process that you guys went through of writing Future Value and why you thought that this information needed to be shared with the baseball world? Yeah. um, Triumph. Triumph approached Kylie and I, gosh, probably a little over – I can't even really remember the timeline for it. Uh, actually, it was such a busy 
calendar year leading up to the book's release, um, they came to us and, and basically said, hey, there hasn't been a book written about this specific niche in the industry in a while. Um, and we wanted to know if you guys wanted to do it. And, you know, we considered it and decided to go about it um, in our own specific way. It mixes some draft room stories uh, as well as like some peel back the curtain to our process and state of the industry, best practice type stuff. Uh, there's a little bit of something for lots of different people who like baseball for different reasons in the book. Um, including, you know, if you're a travel ball parent, like there's, there's stuff in there that's relevant to your interests. So, uh, it's just a sort of an amalgam of a, of a bunch of what Kylie and I have talked about and considered learned for the combined like 25 years the two of us have been in the game in some capacity at this point now i'm glad you mentioned the travel ball stuff if you're a parent listening to this right now and you have a son or even a daughter because softball is starting to be this way uh that's 12 or 13 years old and you think that they have the talent to be really good at baseball and maybe get a college scholarship or even if they are considered an elite talent, maybe get approached by major league teams. You need to buy this book so you could get the insight on how all of this works so you can get your kids uh, to be found, let's call it. Uh, and there's some great chapters in this book about that. And, you know, my, my thought about before opening the book when I got it for Triumph was that I'm going to learn a great deal about scouting, which I did, Eric. But I've learned more about the struggle today for baseball scouts. This is an industry just like many today in the United States that computers and machine learning, they're trying to replace human beings. And the internal battle for some ball clubs uh, is definitely real uh, with GMs wanting to rely more on the data side than perhaps a human perspective. There's a story shared in the book about how one GM changed the draft board, for example, after the scouting director and scouts left the room for lunch. So Eric, you know, I just finished reading the book, and one of the first questions that I have is, are scouts an endangered species in baseball? I think it's – I think it is becoming kind of tenuous. I think there's clearly – the people I talk to are fearful. Um, you know, this the pandemic has not helped matters. At some point, probably over the next month, the beginning of May, you'll start to see teams furlough scouts. Uh, pretty systematically, probably based on whose contract is up soonest. If you let a scout go who's got two years left on a deal, which is a pretty standard contract uh, length for a scout, and you let them go, uh, then you're paying for two years like of their deal. Um, so you're going to see you know scouts with seniority, but whose deals are coming due furloughed before younger scouts um, who are maybe on a two-year deal. And what happens when baseball returns might give teams – it might accelerate what a lot of teams were already considering doing, which is hybridizing pro and amateur scouting together. They're currently two separate departments for most teams. Uh, and just generally having fewer scouts on the whole – and then, of course, if all 30 teams do this or more than are doing it now do this, it's a bad thing for scouting as a profession. Um, the way the job is done, yes, you you alluded to it, uh, tech is just occupying a greater part of the space now. 
it projects to continue to do so. There have been other small, seemingly small things that Major League Baseball has done uh, that has just made tech more available to teams, uh, deferred costs to acquire data across all 30 teams rather than have um, each individual team sort of dictate how they allocate their budget on the amateur scouting side, especially. Okay, so an example of this is uh, data sharing on the amateur side. Uh, it used to be that major league teams could purchase a TrackMan unit for a college, um, and now more recently for junior colleges. And then over time, it, we have trended toward universal sharing of that data. So for a while now, all of the Division One teams' TrackMan data got put into a bucket and all the major league teams had access to the same bucket. Uh, now the same will be true for junior colleges and internationally and any individual player workouts that teams have at their stadium or with the Rapsodo present. Uh, you're supposed to share that now as opposed to paying to have a junior college install a TrackMan and having exclusive access, um, having more kids into your uh, affiliate ballparks or your spring training complex or your big league stadium for pre-draft workouts. All that stuff has to be shared now. Um, it's another example of teams deciding rather than have some teams pay a lot to have the personnel and infrastructure to do this type of thing, we're going to make everyone share and defer the cost of that to all 30 teams so that the have not uh, owners, the owners who don't want to pay for this type of thing, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, uh, they don't feel like they're at as much of a disadvantage where the Dodgers are willing to, you know, reach into the couch cushions at the Glendale complex and like come up with enough money to sign, you know, Cuban after Cuban after Cuban, it's, you know, the same phenomenon occurred internationally. Uh, Luis Robert and Yohan Moncada got big paydays. Shohei Otani did not like cost cutting is just a trend throughout baseball and it's starting to come for scouts. You know, with the technology though, technology is constantly changing and technology is always improving. And one of the things that was noted in the note in the book is that all these universities now, uh, all the big programs, college baseball programs, they all have TrackMan. But it sounds like Major League Baseball may shift away from TrackMan technology. They, they may use a, a different provider. But with all of these types of technologies being installed in the stadiums, when it comes to scouting or what the analytics department and GMs pay most attention to in Major League Baseball front offices, what are the metrics that are most important to them when grading players? So, yeah, over a period of time, the performance metrics start to become more important. You mentioned that, yeah, TrackMan, Major League Baseball seems to be moving away from that tech in the big league parks. Uh, I know Hawkeye, which is the the MLB selected replacement for TrackMan is probably going to come to minor league and college parks. I think some of that is already um, in its infancy. Uh, Hawkeye coming to bigger D1 schools. I think Hawkeye ideally would like to push TrackMan out of baseball altogether if they can. Uh, what is what? What's the difference? I guess for those that are just like a couple years ago, just heard of TrackMan. What's the difference between TrackMan and Hawkeye? TrackMan uses radar tracking technology. PitchFX uses optical tracking and makes a lot of correct inferences. Hawkeye does like a combination of the two. It requires – it's more tech. It's Got more it. cameras. Uh, and it is what the pro tennis uses for line calls. Like it is accurate in such a way that 
MLB is more comfortable using it for uh, an electronic strike zone than they are with TrackMan. And that is okay. what is gen- the genesis of the change. Um, but yeah, back to, to answer your question, <clears throat> the stuff that's going on with tech is, you know, like you have exit velos, you have uh, launch angle, you have cross sections of the two of those, which like if you go on baseball savant would be like a barrel rate. Um, teams are, are backing into expected triple slash lines based on the quality of contact. So it's almost like a more refined way of using uh, Babbitt progressions and like, uh, you know, hit type progressions to sort of triangulate what, based on this guy's quality of contact, what should he really be hitting compared to what it is he actually hit? Like you can kind of suck the luck out of um, triple slash lines in a way that you couldn't with um, with the data that we were working with publicly before that. Uh, and you see that on Baseball Savant as well. You see that on xstats.org. Uh, Andrew Perpetua, who was just let go by the Mets, um, in like a series of strange front office, like analyst type cuts that the the Mets made this off season, his stat uh, site xstats.org is really fascinating. People should check that out. Um, so yeah, like there's all sorts of stuff, new ways to play with the new data um, that their teams are creating distance between themselves and others in the way they go about parsing it. So obviously this book was written prior to coronavirus, totally throwing baseball out of whack. And I love the insight uh, on the, uh, just a little bit. Uh, I, I love the insight on the draft and the July international signing period chapters. Let's start with the draft. I wrote about my thoughts on the proposed 2020 major league baseball draft. And Eric, I was, I'm not a fan of it. That's the short version of my long column about the 2020 draft looking ahead to this summer. How do you expect the draft to go if it's just five rounds or possibly expanded to 10 rounds? I think so. I don't know if it's going to be five, 10, or if the number is going to be different depending on the team. I spoke with someone who told me that there was discussion about it being like the rule five where teams could pass and that you might be able (laughs) to go right. Like where you could, after round five or maybe after round 10, you can go, okay, you know, Detroit Tigers and the Tigers would take somebody. And then, you know, you get to like the Dodgers or whoever has, you know, the Rangers have a very deep system, say, and, you know, they might be like, yeah, pass. Um, and then they wouldn't pick again. But like, you know, all of this is theoretical stuff. Uh, the, the scenarios that MLB has considered are endless because the situation is so unprecedented. And I think a lot of what we're seeing in relationships to the draft and the MLB season is like being floated and leaked as a trial balloon to kind of gauge public opinion. You crowdsource potential problems uh, by, you know, the, the people online who, you know, if we're, we're collectively – uh, really good at like complaining and poking holes in in things and in situation like this that's really useful uh, because you don't want to cement a plan for something and then turns out oh well you know had we asked the world about this they would be like no this is terrible for these three obvious reasons and we would have not done it um, as far as the draft is concerned like there's a lot of it that is definitely unknown both about the structure and the way I think teams will respond to the structure. Um, I think what is certainly going to happen is from a talent bottlenecking situation, the college prospects who would have ordinarily gone between rounds five and 10, if especially if the draft is just five rounds, uh, they're more likely to go back to school, whether they're juniors or whatever. 
Some of that is going to depend on what their individual schools decide to do with scholarship allocation, which the University of Wisconsin has already said, hey, sorry, even if you have a year of eligibility left, seniors, uh, we're not going to renew your scholarship. Like you've had four years of a scholarship. And so that's that. Um, and so like it might depend on individual schools who are more likely to say, hey, you know, priority senior sign guy, you come back for next year. You want to take grad classes with scholarship? Fine. Um, so we'll have to see how that goes. But I do think that there's going to be a spillover of college talent, the type that would have typically gone around five through seven. Some of it will stay at their current school. Some of it will transfer to junior colleges, and some of it will transfer to other D1 programs, uh, especially if – and this was a correct thing that conferences were starting to do. Uh, conferences have, are starting to consider allowing athletes to transfer without the one-year penalty. And so I think you'll see a diffusion of talent from big schools that have a surplus to the smaller schools who have playing time for guys. Um, and then I think the third group of players that are, are going to be impacted by this are the the like mid-six-figure high school bonuses, the individual players who uh, the teams have correctly assessed their signability, and they end up signing for pretty significant overslot bonuses on day three so for the white Sox guys like you've had prospects like that the dj gladney bryce bush types who end up signing over slot deals because they have a tool the org believes in them they had a relationship with the org they assess the signability properly and you get the kid to sign uh those picks don't really exist anymore you don't have the opportunity to cut under slot deals with 10 rounds worth of guys to create that kind of pool space on day three of the draft and so i think the room for teams to be creative and sign that type of high school player is probably gone this year and a lot of those guys are just going to go to school uh, the braves draft from last year is a great example where you probably can't do a thing like that this year where you take a bunch of college players and then go nuts on overslot high schoolers day three uh, that's probably not a thing you do anymore and so in three years when the makai backstroms of the world have gone to college and some of those guys are going to have gone to a big school and like raked for three years. And they're going to be first and second rounders in 2023. Um, and so what this is setting up for, I think, long term is a big 2023 class, uh, which will be interesting. But, you know, obviously we all collectively have bigger fish to fry as a culture before we get there. Right. Because of the bonus payment structure where right now it sounds like 10 percent up front and then the rest of your bonus is split over the next two years. Will that change the minds of prep players, even the top prep players in this upcoming draft class, uh, if they are willing to sign under such bonus payment structure? Yeah. Uh, I think especially if you're a high school player who is old enough that you'd be sophomore eligible in two years, that you're just much more likely to go to school now. Um, the, avail the availability of funds two years from now, uh, especially if you're a pitcher, the degree of confidence that big league clubs have in your ability if you've performed at college, especially if you have a clear path to playing time uh, at your college immediately, why why wait to have the entirety of your bonus in two years when if you're going to be sophomore eligible in two years, that's when you're going to have it anyway. Uh, right. So I think that, yeah, there that there is a certain layer of player uh, that has that calculus to do. It probably exists on the college side too. Um, like if you're a draft eligible soft in college right now and you have a lot of extra eligibility, uh, maybe you do go back to school if you had a lousy 
sophomore year or didn't play a whole lot for whatever reason um, as a freshman and then came into your sophomore year helping to prove yourself and now you didn't have the opportunity to, maybe that guy's more likely to go back to school too. Um, but yeah, I think that the the deferred bonus certainly gives players incentive to stay out of pro ball um, compared to the normal year. I do not envy scouting directors this year, Eric. I mean, I just think this is a terrible situation. I mean, it's a terrible situation in all facets of life. But with the upcoming Major League Baseball draft, I mean, this is this is, the, the draft is already a tough job as it is for amateur scouts and scouting directors. It, it, this just got a lot tougher based on the criteria the league is going through because this is an area that they're trying to cut costs. And the fact that they, you know, the all seasons pretty much stopped in their tracks. So they only have some video of what happened this spring of those that actually did play. And then they couldn't use video prior to March 26th or 27th. Uh, this draft, best of luck to all 30 teams on how they, they approach this upcoming draft. It'll be interesting to see, especially on how the White Sox do. Uh, but for even the rebuilding teams like the Tigers and the Orioles and the Royals, they really need these players in their system and uh yeah we'll see uh, on how many they are able to get if it's five to ten rounds this upcoming summer now there is the international signing period also known as j2 and i love this story from kylie's perspective when he saw wander franco at age 14 and the wonderful insight that you both wrote about when it comes to the Tampa Bay Rays, the New York Yankees approach to the international market, seems like that those two teams have a, a bit of a cold war against one another as they approach the same type of prospects. It, it really seems like from the J2 that if you're not approaching these kids, Eric, at ages 13 or 14, if you're not building the relationships with them and their agents, you as a team put yourself behind the eight ball and trying to sign them, even though technically you're not supposed to sign them until they're 16 years old, uh, as we found out the Braves got in trouble with that. So how do these teams find these next Uber talents when the prospects are 13 or 14 years old? Right. So there are all kinds of ethical considerations to, to, you know, that are just totally couched in everything I'm about to say, right? Like base level, it is weird to be scouting a 13, 14 year old for a professional job, one that uh, does not pay market value for players talent. Like it is just weird across sports in general that we all accept that, yeah, you graduate college or high school or whatever, and your employer just says, hey, you know, we picked you, you're gonna come work for us. You know, we would not accept that in any other uh, form of like in profession in our country. Uh, and it is just kind of weird that we do for sports. And then that is magnified in this situation by the age of the players. Um, but the structure of talent acquisition in Latin America, such that the, you know, the players in some ways have more advantages than domestic amateurs because you get to say, you know, all else being equal, I'd rather play for the Dodgers who are good at developing players or the Astros who are good at developing pitchers or you know, whoever, you have some amount of freedom. And the price of that is that uh, teams and players and their more specifically, because again, we're talking about children here, their representatives are the ones who have, they dictate what happens to these kids' futures. And so what ends up happening is part of this is colored by the 
poverty that is, you know, especially in Venezuela, but in lots of parts of Latin America, when you're 13, 14 years old and a team sees you and they like you, they're going to offer you something now that you as the player will take in hand because your family desperately needs that money. Like a million one is life-changing money for you and your family. And the team is hoping that between age 14 and 16, when you're eligible to sign, that you will grow in such a way that you'll be where you'd hit the open market at that time. You'd be like a four, $5 million prospect. Right. So, uh, it is mutually beneficial in that way with all kinds of like ethical quandaries mixed in. Uh, and so because both, both parties have that type of incentive, the player wants security, the team wants a bargain. Cause if you can ink three guys for a million who you think are growth assets between their ages of 14 and 16, then you've signed $18 million worth of players for like 4 million bucks. Uh, and that's a huge, huge deal. And like Kylie has a, an article on Fangraphs from a while ago that examines like the return on investment for international signings. And it's ridiculous. Um, and so, yeah, like this is why operations like things operate like this down there. Uh, it's a problem of both parties incentives and people not being able to help themselves from doing things that, uh, suit them. And uh, I think that in the next couple of years, we will have an international draft as yet another way to go about stifling some of the problems that arise from this, which, you know, include money laundering and kickbacks and all sorts of other nasty stuff. Um, and there's stuff about that in the book too. Uh, but yeah, like you've got trainers injecting kids with steroids and a lot of this stuff is harder to regulate uh, because it's out of the country's hands. They're just aren't the same type of regulatory bodies in the Dominican Republic as there are here. And so setting up the infrastructure like that yourself as a business entity takes money. Um, and I think MLB is, is now at the point where they're going to start uh, pumping resources in it to have a draft knowing that it's going to save them money in the long run. Yeah. If I was a U.S. representative after reading the two chapters about J2, I think I'd be calling Rob Manfred in for an investigation on the international dealings uh, with Major League Baseball. <laughs> we, we have one. <laughs> like there is a pending DOJ investigation regarding MLB's uh, dealings with a bunch of Cuban players. We're waiting for the results of that. So um, yeah, like that 2016 time period when Cuban players, I think, saw the writing on the wall, industry uh, industry discussion at that time was that bonuses would eventually be capped. Bonus pools would be hard capped the way they are now, right? And you saw the Lazaritos and Moncadas and Luis Roberts uh, and Yadier Alvarez and Hector Oliveira, like the list of the Cubans who left the island during this stretch of time preceding when the bonuses were hard capped was huge. And now like there it's trickle, right? Like it's down to whatever 16, 17 year old is coming out of Cuba now, rather than guys who are established pros down there because they all left when it became clear that MLB was going to, was going to tighten the faucet uh, in the near future. Back to the international draft is the international draft going to wreck the advantages that Teams like the Yankees and Rays, let's add the Dodgers, Padres, Rangers, Indians, because those ball clubs do very well in the international front. Uh, will an international draft wreck their advantages? I think, yeah, some of the skills that 
one has on the international markets that leads you acquiring good players versus the, like some of those that nuance goes away when you have a draft and it's all just sitting down and then you pick a player and then you pick a player and you pick a player. It's kind of like, it's like having an auction format for your fantasy draft versus a snake draft, right? Like it is roughly the same as that, except part of the calculus then is your ability to build relationships with the players and their trainers. Um, so it is like anything else, like there's going to be nuance taken away and that, is probably bad for the individuals who were good at those nuances uh, for their given teams. And so, yeah, uh, some some people are going to benefit from it. Like, if it were me, if I were working for an international department right now, I'd be ecstatic because, like, networking and building relationships and being in constant communication with folks in this way uh, is, like, not a thing I'm all that interested in doing, but evaluating players and kind of gauging who's going to go in front of me and gathering intel based on that is like a thing that really appeals to me. And so there are probably some people who are ecstatic about this and others who, who the core of their skill set is just going to be meaningless soon. In chapter 13, it's called running a modern team. There is a chart in the chapter that has four sections in it. The X axis puts teams on a scale from traditional scouting to progressive analytics use. And the y-axis is success and failure. And the four sections uh, from top left to bottom right are street smart, model-driven contenders, momentum-seeking, and fine-tuning the formula. The Chicago White Sox are in the momentum-seeking section. And it appears the difference between momentum-seeking and street smart is scouting player development success. Eric, why are the White Sox in the momentum-seeking section? And what needs to change for them to be perceived as street smart? I think some of it is that the college pitching that they've taken in the draft has had either been hurt or not really developed. Um, so that's been part of it. And some of the outfielders who we were all collectively excited about at one point or another, Blake Rutherford, I had stuffed when he was an amateur, um, you know, like we all probably were a little too heavy on Luis Basabe after his futures game performance. Mike Rodolfo has been hurt, et cetera. Like Jake Berger, like there's just been a series of, of unfortunate events and combined uh, with up until lately, I think, uh, you know, player dev stuff that was clearly not working. So I think there were probably some philosophical stuff on the amateur side. The, the college player um, proclivity has had been pretty strong for a while, and some of it I, you know, I'm into like who's going to complain about Andrew Vaughn or Madrigal? Like these are these right. are great picks, um, but you know, like I'd rather have uh, let's see, like Connor Pilkington, right? Connor Pilkington, pretty vanilla stuff, mm -hmm. pitched really well in the SEC for three years. That guy's got a better chance of being a starter than a lot of the, you know, like Tyler Ivy types, um, Cody Hire, right? Cody Hire is a straight up reliever, but Cody Hire's chances of being anything, I think now, uh, are greater than like the Connor Pilkington 8891 soft tossing pitch ability guys. Like just give me the guy with huge stuff who's maybe a reliever rather than the guy who might be a back end starter. Um, and I think that maybe the mid round day two type selections for 
Chicago uh, did not reflect that type of thinking. Uh, I think the same is true for Pittsburgh. Like they're not certainly not alone. Uh, and so that some of that has been, you know, stifled some of the the pitching depth in the org. Like there's just a bunch of reasons that each individually are pretty insignificant. But when you start to add them up over time, um, it's been part of what the barrier between where the org is at and where they want to be. Uh, I think like it's it's the reason. So uh, yeah, it's um it's an interesting or I mean obviously there's a reason that. Uh, People are excited and have expectations at this point, right? It's because you know, my part of the industry, the prognostication aspects of it, we've told you for a while now that, hey, the White Sox farm system is really good and uh, the big league club is going to be soon too. But like you, some of the hiccups have been at the, at the highest level. Like You guys have seen this stuff lay bare on the biggest stage. You've seen <clears throat> Giolito deal with his struggles and find you've seen like specifically what it takes to find it, you know, capital I it with a guy like that. It's, Oh, it required this Mm -hmm. very weird specific mechanical change to unlock this. And like with Moncada, it took a beat before he was fully formed and same like it was for Tim Anderson. Like it's pretty rare for guys just to come up and be monsters right away. And you guys have learned that time after time with each of these individuals and I think, you know, the time for competing is coming. And then what matters at that time is keeping the system flush so that you can start uh, consolidating and adding a Christian Yelich. You know, like make that type of trade where it's like we're trading Lewis Brinson and Isan Diaz and, you know, these four other dudes for this uber stud because now we're like really one of the top contenders you still need guys like that and they either have to emerge from your system or you have to have the horses to trade for them and i think that second scenario is where uh like we're not sure if the white Sox are gonna be able to do it yet um but uh but yeah i think it's a promising time uh but it's there have been hiccups and, and speed bumps on the way to this point where there are still expectations that um you know, it's not clear if they're going to be met. I think you guys in San Diego are in the same sort of boat. Yeah. I would say that San Diego's got a little bit more horses, though, than the White Sox farm system. It seems that the Padres have a greater prospect depth because I, I totally agree with you. If the White Sox wanted to make a major trade, and we've been saying this for almost a calendar year, that the prospects are going to have to step up their game. And if they don't, Rick Hahn suddenly doesn't have a lot of assets to move. I mean, that... Uh, no more Mazzara trade is probably the best that he can do given the circumstances because it required Steel Walker and Steel Walker is a was a top 10 White Sox prospect and that's maybe the best the White Sox can do unless you are okay with them trading Andrew Vaughn like I, I totally understand that and hopefully the White Sox uh, can figure out as far as their second level of prospects that they could step up their game and the uh, the White Sox they're attractive enough to be able to trade for incredible MLB talent, like you mentioned with Christian Yelich, to help the team in Chicago get its first winning season since 2012. Uh, but before we let you go, let's let's talk about that real quick. Uh, as our next topic on this podcast is Major League Baseball's plans for the 2020 season. Uh, the most recent one is now splitting the league into two based on spring training sites. Let's call it the Arizona plan plus Florida. Uh, Eric, 
what do you think about baseball's plans of returning in 2020? And is Arizona ready for at least 15 Major League Baseball teams to play 100-plus games this year? So I think I think a broader takeaway for all of us needs to be, hey, see how quick all of this changes and how wildly different the scenarios being considered are. Maybe we should all relax and like wait till something is decided before we all lose our shit reacting to it. Um, <laughs> so like from a logistics perspective, we are not at a point right now, and I don't think we will be in the next four weeks uh, where you can justify utilizing testing and allocating other resources to a thing like this because of public health. So I think we're probably, you know, the situation in the past an article that floated May, I, you know, I don't think this is Jeff's fault. Like I bet the president said that to the commissioner on the phone or something. Um, that doesn't seem feasible to me. This is a thing that's going to happen much later in the summer and in the fall. Uh, I think that TV considerations are paramount and that makes having Florida and Arizona more realistic because while I think the facilities to accommodate all 30 teams in Arizona do exist from a baseball standpoint, like in addition to all our spring training stadiums, there's ASU, there's Grand Canyon, there's the Kino Sports Complex down in Tucson, which is you know like an hour, 20-minute drive. There's High Corbett Field at U of A, again in Tucson. Uh, there's the the Arizona Cardinals stadium you could theoretically play indoor games at. Vegas isn't a far flight or drive. They have two big league quality facilities there. Um, at you know UNLV and uh, the Aviators Stadium. So like there are ways to do that, but it's about the pressure on the rest of society here. It's about putting players in hotels, which again is interesting in Vegas, where there are just so many unoccupied rooms. Um, yeah. Which is why I think you know the NBA is likely to descend upon there. Um, but from a TV perspective, having games start at night in Florida and at night in Arizona is more feasible than having day games here in Arizona that play in primetime East Coast on TV because it's just so damn hot here. Like it really is a problem. Right. Um, so there's that and the hotel and healthcare workers and the size of the staffs and isolating people from their families. There's a litany of problems that occur in both scenarios. You have to have almost like a surplus of testing uh, domestically here in the United States to allow players to be tested constantly to make sure that we're not in a situation where, oh, uh, you know, Todd Coffee shows up. He's got he's got coronavirus and like gives it to everybody like you can't have that. So right. you have to test players constantly and we have to have the tests to do that. And we specifically have to have enough tests for sick people to justify giving them to healthy athletes. Uh, and so until we get to a point societally where that's happening, there's just not going to be baseball regardless of whether or not it's in front of people. So um, I think it's going to be. A while yet four six eight weeks uh before there's baseball and probably uh you know on the lower end of that range before we start to see a societal like cresting of 
our collective illnesses. Well, you could follow Eric on Twitter. He's at Loggenhagen, and he covers everything prospects for Fangraphs.com. The big board, the top prospects for each ball club, the MLB draft, J2, the dude does it all. And of course, buy his new book, Future Value, on TriumphBooks.com, your local bookstore. If they are delivering, help the local guys out. And if you don't have a local bookstore, you can order, of course, on Amazon.com. And again, Eric, congratulations on the book. No doubt your work is going to spawn four or five blog ideas that we have for Sox Machine uh, about the Chicago White Sox from your guys' writing. And uh, I honestly have to say this is instantly in my top five favorite baseball books ever. And I'm so glad that you and Kylie got a chance to share your stories and perspectives. Thanks. Yeah, that that means a lot to hear. It was, uh, you know, it was quite a, an undertaking. And yeah, the the Bosa, the White Sox list will be on fan graphs in the coming weeks. So folks, be sure to check that out. And um, and yeah, I hope everyone uh, stays well and uh, is is feeling OK in this time of uh, of great anxiety and uh, and tragedy at a global scale. You know, I hope um, the book in some small ways brings a little bit of peace of mind to people for hours at a time while you're sifting through it. And um, yeah, in addition to the book and the data on the board, um, you know, that, that means a lot to hear that you guys are going to use that as as a tool to do your own research going forward. That is the purpose of it, to give um, to give folks the ammunition to, to do uh, research with tools that don't exist elsewhere. So thank you. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for coming back on the Sox Machine podcast. We'll have to have you again uh, on again when we get closer to the Major League Baseball draft, whenever that is. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Fingers crossed that it's, I think it'll be the first baseball thing that, uh, that happens before there's any, before there are any games. Uh, and I still think it'll be June, but yeah, I'd be glad to come on and, and talk White Sox org and draft with you guys again soon. We'll be right back on the Sox machine podcast to discuss major league baseball's proposed new plans for 2020 after a quick word from our sponsors. Spring is calling, and Target's ready with deals for your outdoor space. Grab miracle Grow Potting Mix, on sale at two for $8. Plus, get 20% off planters and more. Find spring's best outdoor buys at Target, where low prices and great deals make it easy to save. Restrictions apply. Now I'm joined by the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast. It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. I hope you had a good Easter weekend, considering the circumstances that most that are listening to this are dealing with. Yeah, it was an unusual one. Uh, all things considered, I had to drive back and forth uh, with my wife to Kansas City for a family thing uh, uh, that could not really wait. So we had to go back and forth, but um, got stuck in traffic and I-24, some accident that caused uh, uh, part of the highway in Kentucky to be shut down for like 50 minutes. So that was unusual and, you know, sitting in a box truck, for 10 and a half hours is not really the I've never spent an Easter Sunday like that but uh I'm back and uh all in one piece so can't really complain so out of all of your Easter Sundays ranked this is pretty low on the list yeah I think so I can't think of any worse ones I've had worse Christmases but not Easter's well raid the grocery stores and the convenience stores down in Nashville and get those clearance Reese's Easter eggs, uh, <laughs> as they'll be fifty percent off tomorrow. And all the peeps, all the peeps. Are you a peep guy? No. Yeah, they're fun in the microwave. That's about it. 
that I've never done, but I am, I am not a peep guy. For those that are peep fans, uh, bless your hearts. What's the matter with you? Yeah, what's the matter with you? Anyways, okay, so moving on from Easter candy, we just finished up chatting with Eric Loggenhagen of Fangraphs about his new book, Future Value. Uh, Jim, we both got an advanced copy of the book. It comes out today. What are your thoughts about the new release so far? I'm about 150 pages in, haven't quite gotten through it yet. Uh, so I'm more in the nuts and bolts parts. Um, uh, I guess you can tell me. It sounds like uh, he he hinted early on, or at least they hinted early on, that uh, they do go team by team to give an idea of where they feel teams are in the amateur scouting and development process, processes, but I have not skipped ahead to spoil it for myself, so I'm still going through in a... Uh, sequential fashion but it is very impressive just how deep they go into each of the processes and every time I think I'm going to start skimming because yeah I know how this works I know how rule five works I know how you know the um, you know j2 signing deadline works there's always something that pause you know that that stops me and, and and makes me actually read it maybe read it twice to make sure I'm understanding it because they go into depth that uh I, uh, that, 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 oh, it unveils a lot of things or just uncovers a lot of things that I just either didn't think about, never heard about, or heard about once a long time ago and then forgot. Yeah. One of those is how the draft room works for me. That that's been one of my big takeaways from where you are so far through the book. And I don't want to give other MLB franchises any ideas, but if you begin the book, you you learn about the draft and what happens to the draft room. And Kylie McDaniel has worked in the draft rooms for the Atlanta Braves uh, as past roles. And he shares his personal experiences being in the draft room early on in the book to give you an idea on how it works. But I don't know what the point of scouting directors are for some teams. If the general managers just get to sit down with the analytics team and they're going to make draft picks off track man data. It sounds like some teams are doing that already. Uh, I, I, I don't recommend that for any team because then you're probably disregarding any personal issues that these players may have uh, mm-hmm. off the field problems that scouts definitely know about. Uh, we've had Nick Hostetler in the past come on the podcast and yeah, he's tailed some prospects to see who they hang out with, what they do after school. It's kind of creepy, very stalkerish, but they do that because they're going to invest millions of dollars in some of these draft picks. They want to make sure that they're making the right investment. Uh, but that the, where you are at so far in the book, that was the most eye-opening outside of the J2 stuff, which we we chatted with Eric about. And I, I think if any U.S. representative, Jim, read this book after they figure out the DOJ stuff with Cuba, mm-hmm. then it's okay, what are you doing to Dominican Republic, Major League Baseball? What, why are you guys trying to scout and uh, recruit these 13- and 14-year-olds? You know, that, that won't fly with U.S. labor laws. Uh, so it, it's just really fascinating stuff. And, again, I, I highly recommend those uh, folks that are thinking about getting the book uh, to definitely get the book again. It, it does come out today. Yeah, you mentioned too the the draft and how you know scouting directors some in some organizations get uh, you know I guess pushed out of the big decisions. And I wonder if that's going to blow up in their face for a draft year like this year where there is no new data, right. or at least no uh, you know no new data beside beyond March twenty seventh. I think was the cutoff date. Yep. Uh, so you know when you have 
basically the same data that everybody else has. And then you have about three incomplete months just going uh, off. That data doesn't seem to be enough. And that's when you'd want to have those um, coaching networks and those uh, trainer, advisor, uh, college staffers, um, you know, high school coaches, just the people who know the area as well and can and you have relationships built up over years to where you can trust a coach if he says that uh, this guy, you know, didn't get to start a season because we're up in the Northeast, but, you know, everything we saw, everything we heard said that he gained, you know, a couple ticks or his slider looked really impressive. We have no numbers to back it up, but you'll have to trust me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you have long enough relationships to where a coach wouldn't do that to somebody, wouldn't, you know, f uh, uh, force a scout to stick his neck out for something he hasn't seen, um, that would seem to be... Uh, a way to reward those teams that still have all those scouts and, and all those networks and, and have really done that part well. Yeah, and I think the from what I have heard and understand, the White Sox are very they, – they trust their scouts. They, they have a lot of scouts in the room. But the problem is in recent years you have a former scout who is running all of baseball operations for the franchise at Kenny Williams – and anyone can guess on how arguing with Kenny Williams goes. Uh, but that those are the, some of the rumors that are coming out of the White Sox draft room, is that it's a very divided room. But the White Sox are not one of those teams. Like the story shared, we, we talked about in the interview with Eric, that the scouting director and the scouts leave the room to go get lunch, and the GM changes the draft board based on the analytics team. Yeah. That's like, yeah. I, I couldn't <laughs> believe that. One, yeah. I just, I, I couldn't believe that a, a GM would do that. But you know, it's their neck on the line, though, right? If it, if a team doesn't draft well, I'm sure there are White Sox fans that blame Rick Hahn um, for their poor draft picks from 2015 through 2017, and and how those draft picks haven't panned out. So. I get it. Well, I guess, yeah, my read on the chapter was, though, that they do that in order to not put their necks on the lines. They can always say it's the analytics. It's the algorithm. Right. It's the system. It's what the data was saying. Um, you know, it wasn't my independent opinion. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know how any owner can look at those excuses and and be like, they're valid. I'm like, well, you're the GM. You're responsible for the analytics team. You're responsible for the scouts. Like, uh, but you're right. I mean, they got other yeah. areas for excuse. They have built in excuses. So if something doesn't go well, I'm sorry, boss, I'll fire the analytics team. I'll bring in a new team. This won't happen again. And, and that buys you time. Maybe that's how some GMs still have a job after seven straight losing seasons. Oh, but anyways, so that's the book. Highly recommended. I think you're going to enjoy the rest of the book, Jim. It's a, it is enlightening. And uh, the final chapter of the book, just not to be a spoiler, but that's when they go team by team on their analysis. Yeah, I have not peaked. Yeah. So uh, then, spoiler alert, I would not listen to the Eric Loggenhagen interview uh, the final question, because that's the final question I ask him about. Uh, so if you don't want to be, you don't want to get a spoiler, skip that last question when you listen to the podcast later on. Okay. But back to baseball news from Bob Nyingill on from USA Today. He posted a story earlier last week about how one proposal for Major League Baseball to return in 2020 is having two leagues, a little bit different from the Arizona plan 
that earlier ESPN's Jeff Passan reported that was on the table for Major League Baseball, having all 30 teams in Arizona. This proposal would be the Cactus League against the Grapefruit League. Obviously, the White Sox would be in the Cactus League because their spring training facility is in Arizona, and their league of 15 teams would be all the teams that train in Arizona, which is interesting because now you have local teams like the Chicago Cubs and the Milwaukee Brewers in the same league as the White Sox. And a proposed division realignment for the White Sox would have them in the same division as the Los Angeles Dodgers, the Cleveland Indians, the Anaheim Angels, and the Cincinnati Reds, which coming from the American League Central, might as well call that the group of death for the White Sox. A couple weeks ago, Jim, we both felt that it was still unlikely that baseball would return in 2020. With another proposal coming to light via USA Today, whatever means that Major League Baseball is having this information leaked out, not sure if it's testing uh, as far as the audience uh, to see what kind of feedback they would get from fans to whether or not to seriously consider this type of proposal. But regardless of that, now that we have two proposals that have been laid out uh, in the public through the work of Jeff Passan and Bob Nightingale, does your stance change about Major League Baseball returning this year? I guess I would amend my stance to say maybe I can see it returning, but if they have contingencies for players testing positive. Like, I don't see how they can have... I mean, Korea's going through the same thing right now in the KBO. Just they, you know, if somebody ends up testing positive, they shut down the league for two weeks. And, you know, because of uh, Korea's extensive testing, they have, uh, I, I think they're more than ready to implement aggressive testing that, uh, the way they have across the civilian population. And so there isn't a weird disparity between, uh, you know, wealthy athletes getting tested every day, whereas some areas of the country that need them can't get them. They don't really have that disparity there. Um, when it comes to these plans, I can see them trying to get it off the ground. I just wonder, you know, with all the money tied up in this, and the KBO doesn't have this problem, like all this money tied up in TV deals and um, the, well, I guess, the, I guess they have more, yeah, I would say they don't have to worry about ballpark employees so much that they're playing in Arizona. But, you know, say the MLB staffers, the uh, players around the team that are not members of the team and thus, you know, that uh, the definition of essential employee may may fluctuate, but if they just have a plan for an interruption, or if this doesn't go through, if they play 30 games, a bunch of players test positive, or managers, or whoever get test positive, they realize that this is dangerous and they can't do it. Can they cancel it? Can they stop it for a month and bring it back? Can they can they do stop and start? That's what I'm really curious about. I can't see them starting it because. They really seem intent on it. There's a lot of money riding on it, both for the league and players, and they they seem interested in getting it done. I just don't know how they have an uninterrupted season start to finish. That doesn't include some major snags, some major stoppages that uh, they have to plan for. Which plan do you think is more feasible? That's the key word, feasible, for Major League Baseball if baseball does return in 2020. The Arizona plan, which all 30 teams would be playing their games in Arizona or this cactus and grapefruit league setup in which there are still two leagues of 15 teams. One league is based in Arizona. The other league is based in Florida. I would say the cactus grapefruit league divide just because you don't have to worry about 
30 teams trying to cram in 15 games in one dense geographical area. You don't have to worry about, uh, uh, or it cuts down on the number of teams crossing paths with each other at facilities and, um, you know, whether it's, you know, it's like Chase Field doesn't have to necessarily host three games a day if they feel like it's going to wear out the field or just produce a, a bad quality surface to play on. Florida, they can, you know, spread out teams and not have them all up on each other. So that's why that seems a bit more feasible. And the, the other, I guess when it comes to these plans and the, the thing I see or that confuses me or makes me think it's not feasible is when they're talking about trying to get like 120 games in or playing double headers, catch up as many games as possible. I think they really need to plan for 81 games, 82 games or, or fewer just to not make it seem so desperate and, and set this extremely high bar for what they can promise networks and, and, uh, I guess they're national broadcast partners, gambling partners for uh, amount of games or amount of weeks or months they'll be able to play just because uh, when you have all these teams piled on each other, that just doesn't seem like it's going to be a safe way to do it. And I think it's fascinating to me about the, the, the Arizona uh, or say the cactus league, the grapefruit league plan is uh, you know, having an odd number of teams and, uh, one thing that's kind of curious to me or would be new is like baseball season without series. Like they don't have to play a three game series or four game series anymore with each other because they're, you know, there's no travel involved. They don't have to, you know, set up camp for a few days. So do they just rotate through and have an idle team every, uh, every day that's different in order to give one off day a week or, uh, you know, one to two off days a week guaranteed. Uh, there are a lot of ways to do that. And so if they're playing a shortened season, they're not trying to cram in as many games as possible just to, um, you know, have enough of a superior product or, and I should say an inferior product to pass along to their partners. They could do an interesting setup here just for one year, since it's not going to really stand as valid or uh, like any other season to where the league's going to have to worry about comparing 2020 to 2019 in the history books. It would be like the spring training schedule just extended, right? Yeah. That's what you're hinting at? Yeah, no split squads. Or, you know, maybe they could do something with split squads oh, God, where they no. try to, like, uh, kind no. of like a uh, parlay. No, Jim. No. Two wins or no wins. Let's take that idea. Let's go to the paper shredder and make sure Rob Manfred does not read that or hear about that. <laughs> you don't think the White Sox have enough talent to win two, <laughs> two games in one day with two different teams playing the other team's uh, A squad? Based on this division alignment with this proposed plan, I don't think the White Sox are finishing higher than third in that division. I mean, that division is brutal. Dodgers, Indians, Angels, Reds, and White Sox? Well, we'll get to it in P.O. Sox. Yeah. I would say, okay, from a television aspect, and a lot of people on Twitter chimed in about this, because uh, I did put out a Twitter poll, and on the Twitter poll, 55% of our followers did, do agree with you, Jim, that they think it's more feasible, the Cactus and Grapefruit Leagues, and 45% believe the Arizona plan is more feasible. I think the Arizona plan for me is more feasible because I just do not trust Florida Especially the way that the state of Florida, and I'm not trying to inject politics into this podcast, but Florida's just been really odd on the way that they have handled the coronavirus outbreak. And I trust Arizona right now 
to have everything under control and I'm not as worried about a coronavirus outbreak in Arizona than I am in Florida. The teams that have to go to Florida, the Minnesota Twins are are one of those teams, uh, I would be concerned about. Like, if I had to place money down, that is where a player is going to get coronavirus is in Florida. And we saw that with the New York Yankees, right? Uh, they had a few minor league players mm-hmm. that contracted the coronavirus. Uh, so that's why, for me, the Arizona plan is more feasible because I don't trust Florida. Uh, but we'll see. I mean, if Florida gets everything squared away, if they're able to flatten the curve and they're able to uh, help as far as prevent the outbreak of coronavirus within its state, then I totally get it because with Florida, you have some East Coast, you have some Central time. Uh, and then when you have Arizona, they can help take care on the other half of the country as far as viewing times. Uh, you and I, we get screwed over, Jim, because every White Sox game might be at 9 o'clock Central time. <laughs> yeah, but I don't have another um, job, so it's fine by me. Yeah, so this is yeah, great no, for you. It, the um, one thing that's, you know, when you when you talk about this and lay this out, the one thing that strikes me is that the concept of a home team doesn't really matter. No. I mean, you could just flip a coin. Yeah. So just, it'll be, I guess it'll test the whole, uh, I guess, in a way, fabric of the game and and just how, you know, you have, you know, baseball, I think is the most local or regional game of, you know, all the majors, maybe hockey too. Say hockey and and baseball are the two games that are more local than national. And uh, when when you have uh, these very local teams, like I think you could put the NFL in the desert, have all these teams play each other and there's enough gambling action, enough, you know, national celebrity action, enough, I guess, allegiances formed over countries based on just how prevalent teams were on TV in a certain decade to where the fan bases aren't necessarily born along strict geographic lines. So I think, uh, you know, having the leagues imported to Florida and Arizona for a full season and not being tied to any geography, I, I wonder what the effects of that would be. Like, I really don't want to predict too much i think for a year i think it'd get by okay but when you don't have the home team there when you don't have any kind of semblance of um you know showing up to a stadium and feeling like you're in somebody else's park i wonder what that means you know those are good questions and to our second poll asking our followers which state do you think is most likely major league baseball will return in 2020 and uh, the, the big winner there is July 1st. 43% of our followers think that baseball is most likely to return in 2020 on July 1st. Uh, 30% believe there will be no games in 2020 still, with 15% just for June 1st and 12% for August 1st. So with the proposed plans there, the, the league sounds like they would love to come back or at least have some type of spring training action in the month of May. Uh, but for you, our listeners and followers, you don't think that's right now feasible to have games on the a, a big chunk of you don't think that games will be played as soon as June 1st, which it sounds like that would be the wonderful goal for Major League Baseball to return by then. Uh, but I, I agree with our followers that baseball does return. And we talked about this earlier in the month. Uh, July 1st would be a more realistic target date for the league uh, as we would still have no baseball in the months of May and June, but we are seeing these proposals. So I think major league baseball must like what they are hearing, speaking to the medical experts, 
that they're trying to get their ducks in a row and then quickly launch a 2020 season. So they're not losing out on TV money and players get to make more money based on their contracts. Uh, but while the players themselves are trying to stay in shape and the, the player, some players are trying to help keep baseball fans entertained. And there is now a MLB, the show 20 online league. So you have a player representative of every major league baseball team uh, is part of the MLB, the show online league. And Lucas Giolito is going to represent the Chicago white Sox. Jim, are you going to watch? I will watch at least once with an open mind. Okay. Like, I don't uh, see it being something I would enjoy, but given the lack of entertainment and given just how sometimes it's a lot of fun watching a game you're not playing. Like, you know, just I'm, I'm thinking back in college, like in dorms, just sitting around people's dorms watching them play Halo and not being involved, but just enjoying the trash talk, the uh, stupid stunts, especially like, say, with glitches. I, yeah. I wouldn't mind seeing, you know, how Lucas Giolito responds to players uh, being recorded out when the first baseman is standing somewhere in the coaching box and somehow catches the ball. <laughs> so it could be fun. Yeah. You know, on, uh, on Fox sports, they have, they've been doing NASCAR, but online. So the NASCAR drivers are in their like test environments mm-hmm. and they're conducting the races that they would have before the season got suspended for them because of the coronavirus. And I, I was watching some of it, and I was I was a bit entertained. I, I must admit, even though you're watching professional drivers play a video game, uh, it, it was kind of funny in how reckless some of these guys are because it's just a video yeah. game, whatever. You know, they're, they're a lot more aggressive than they would be in real life because in real life you're in the car, and if you screw up and you run into somebody into the wall, I mean, they could die. Uh, you you don't have that fear mm-hmm. in a video game, uh, but it was still entertaining, and I, I think I will watch some. Uh, for a couple of reasons why I wanted you know it's it'll be entertainment to watch Major League Baseball players play a video game that I have that I'm not very good at, uh, and I and maybe I'll watch to see if I get any tips on how I could be better at the game itself. So again, that's uh, one way that Major League Baseball is trying to entertain us. They're having MLB The Show uh, 20 online league, and Lucas Giolito is representing the Chicago White Sox. You can watch those games on Twitch. And if you're part of the older generation and asking what in the world is Twitch, just think of YouTube. But all it is is video game streaming. So yeah, and go if, to twitch.com. If, if Giolito is also like free associating to where like he's, he's pitching against uh, the Indians and he's uh, you know, facing Francisco Lindor and he's talking about how he pitches them in real life or how he's tried to, or things that have happened when he's tried pitching them, that could be a lot of fun. It could be. If he's just like riffing off uh, something he's seeing and just commenting on how realistic it is, how, uh, how fake it is, just uh, things that have, uh, you know, stories he's telling from his career that the game inspires. That could be a way for anybody to enjoy it. That's a good point. So again, that's uh, twitch.com. Or if you follow Lucas Giolito on Twitter, I'm sure he's going to be posting the links that you can watch him during the live stream. So hopefully it will be fun because, again, right now we don't really have much for baseball other than replaying old games. And at this point, Jim, I, they're not doing anything for me. Like the watch, re, the rewatch of the 2005 season, I think the White mm-hmm. Sox are having game three be live streamed on YouTube. 
this week uh, as far as game three of the 2005 World Series. I, I just, I don't know. Like, I know the results, so I don't have this huge desire to rewatch these games. Yeah, I think with t- 2005, too, it's been revisited so often because of the lack of subsequent postseason appearances to where I don't want to see them go yeah. back to that well again. Yeah, but they still are. <laughs> so, uh, yep. oh, well. But anyways, so that's the news right now around Major League Baseball. I know it's not much to work on. Uh, but that is what's out there right now. And of course, if anything changes, you guys can get updated, uh, based on Jim's writing on socksmachine.com. You guys also had some questions this week for us in PO socks. So let's answer those after a quick word from our sponsors. Masks for family. Check. Garden cleanup. Check. Schedule back pain visit. Done. We've all adapted to a new way of living. Keep your health care on schedule with Johns Hopkins Medicine, where your health and safety are our highest priorities. We're ready to care for you through virtual and in-person visits across Maryland and the greater Washington region. Your health, our experts, safely caring for you. Schedule your care now. Learn more at hopkinsmedicine.org forward slash safe. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Socks, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter by following us on Twitter at Socks Machine or helping support Socks Machine and becoming a friend of the podcast and the website at patreon.com slash Socks Machine. And our questions this week come from our Patreon supporters. Thank you guys so much for your support. And the first question that we have, Jim, comes from Southpaw Jackson. And Southpaw is asking, will you watch the KBO games? I think I'll watch some uh, just to refresh my memory of what it's like to watch a fanless game and, and experience some of those sensations again. But when it comes to watching regularly, I would probably say no, just because watching the Korean games, um, you know, it's a lower level of baseball. I'd say like double A, high A, something like that, uh, depending on, you know, say how many, um, I guess how mature the talent is there. Uh, but when it comes to like watching those games and, especially a lineup that I don't recognize any of the players and I'm just more going off of, you know, uniforms and uh, looking for general baseball action. The the big thing drawing me there is the crowds and the chants and the songs and the dances and the whole scenery and just the, um, you know, just the environment that I remember experiencing when I went to the games. That's why I watched those games and to not have any fans there. That's, uh, I anticipate that that would be a big reason why I wouldn't watch many of them. I'd, I'll drop in from time to time, but not watch regularly. However, if I if I do end up like watching a game and watching another one and then say like make it a three-time-a-week habit, I think that'll reflect, I guess, my appetite for watching live uh, baseball of any kind where I don't know the ending. If the KBO games were replayed, like on MLB Network or on ESPN, I think I would watch them. But if it's only the live stream in the middle of the night, I'm going to miss them. 
Yeah, it could be cool if it were like rebroadcast in the MLB Network with, say, a, a guide to the either the rosters or the, um, you know, tell some stories behind how the teams come together, the history of the teams. Just, you know, I guess like a pop-up video type thing just to let player people know like, hey, this guy is considered uh, one of the top hitters in the KBO. You've never heard of him, uh, but he could be posted soon at some point. Or he's talked about going pro, or, uh, going to the majors. Or he's somebody who is, uh, you know, the youngest player in the league. Things you wouldn't know about just from uh, looking at the rosters and because, you know, the games are broadcast in Korean, you wouldn't hear it from the commentary itself unless you speak that language. Yeah. I, I, you know, I'm, I wouldn't mind that, but I guess, you know, with everyone else, you know, broadcasters still practicing their craft and now and seeing people's random videos that they send in, uh, maybe that's mm-hmm. a good way of practicing just assign some broadcasters to call the game that they're watching on TV. I don't know. Um, but I guess Southpaw, from my perspective, if they replayed the games on ESPN, I'd be more likely to watch, especially if during the afternoon, uh, than try to catch a live stream at like two. What it, what time are KBO games usually on? Like two, three in the morning. Yeah, mostly. Yeah, yeah. I I'll miss them. So, but that's where I am at Southpaw. You guys, let us know if you're going to be watching the KBO games. Uh, while they are playing as we are still waiting for baseball here in the Western Hemisphere. But Southpaw, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Andrew Siegel. And Andrew's asking, Jim, the team was constructed with the Minnesota Twins in mind as its primary divisional foe. If the White Sox had to compete in a division with the Angels and Dodgers, how does that change the odds of postseason play? How might that affect the White Sox decision with Michael Kopech, Nick Madrigal, and any other meaningful prospect whose service time is fluid? Well, as you mentioned, it's the group of death on paper. I just wonder with how weird the season is, and if you take, like, say, the whole untether the league from its geographical outposts and put it all in one weird experimental, uh, I guess, uh, this is more of a, I guess, a metaphorical dome than a, a real bubble over Arizona, but it feels like it. Yeah, I, I think the White Sox would have to act like this is a short season. This is a sprint. We've had better records than these teams in Cactus Leagues before. It's a really long Cactus League, but a really short season, and it could get weird. So I think uh, that you know every team would have to go into this thinking this could be us because who knows how the projections will apply? Who knows how uh, certain players like a Mookie Betts will handle playing for a new team after a three month layoff? You know, maybe he's not going to be, yeah, I think he'll still be better than basically every other player besides Mike Trout and and a few others, but there's a chance, you know, he could just have a weird off year and you could have randomly off years from all these other guys who have been interrupted and, distracted and everything else. So I think every team has to go into it thinking like this could be us. This could be uh, uh, this could be crazy. And I'm thinking like a couple of years ago uh, at the halfway point, the Dodgers were tied for a second behind the Arizona Diamondbacks in the NL West. And nobody expected that to happen. Uh, the Dodgers were a little bit worse than everybody thought. The Diamondbacks were way better and the Dodgers eventually won out. But uh, you know, for a half season, the Diamondbacks were giving them hell and better for a lot of it. So I think that's the way that the White Sox would have to look at it. And I think they would have to act all hands on deck, you know, say if everybody were 
healthy and able and they were responsible to pitch Michael Kopech like in the first uh, couple weeks of the season and Nick Madrigal looks ready to go, then I think you have to put them on the roster. I think it's more of a matter of like, say, an Andrew Vaughn type. Uh, he might be more affected than anybody else if, if the White Sox are pulling ahead if they're you know have a two or three game lead and they lose a hitter and Andrew Vaughn is like maybe the best guy they have on hand to work some tough counts and extend the lineup a little bit beyond you know top four hitters uh maybe they'd plug him in but if the White Sox say start 10 and 17 and think you know they're they're already like seven or eight games behind first place and they think like oh we can't make up that ground you know we don't have the horses uh guys aren't healthy uh, we're going to have to just kind of uh, fold it and get ready for next year, get some guys some reps, but um, not really, uh, you know, go all in on this year. Then I could see the case where they, you know, <laughs> we've seen them do it before with uh, Eloy Jimenez and Luis Robert, you know, not calling them up when they're ready. We've seen them do that before. So I, I imagine, you know, in a shorter season where it's going to be harder to make up an early deficit, they're going to, you know, I guess they're going to even, uh, pursue that um, strategy even more so this year and actually have documentable reasons for it that I think even skeptical fans like ourselves would agree that it doesn't make the whole uh, make most sense to do. The Baltimore Orioles get the worst draw out of these proposed divisions as they're in the Grapefruit League. They would be in the South Division with the Boston Red Sox, the Minnesota Twins, the Atlanta Braves, and the Tampa Bay Rays. Baltimore would be lucky to win 25% of their games under this format. Yeah. Well, I guess on the, on one hand, you know, if they're going for the top draft perfect. Pick, yeah. uh, the way they have been. Yeah. It's, it's, it's yeah, perfect. Let's get rocked for Kumar Rocker, right? I mean, that'd be the Baltimore chant uh, in 2020. Uh, no better division alignment than that. If you're a Baltimore Orioles fan, you want the number one pick in the 2021 draft that that proposed draft alignment would, uh, would help, the Baltimore Orioles achieved that for sure uh, in 2020 because that is a that is a brutal, brutal, brutal division alignment for the Baltimore Orioles. But another division alignments in the Cactus League, you would have the Cubs, the Giants, Diamondbacks, Rockies, and A's in the Northeast Division, and in the Northwest Division, the third division, the Cactus League, it's the Brewers, Padres, Mariners, Rangers, and Royals, and I feel that's the weakest of the divisions in the Cactus League and. If there's any way that the White Sox could shift over to that division, uh, if this plan does come into place, uh, that would give me more confidence in them reaching the postseason in 2020. Uh, but if this plan does come to place, Andrew, I don't know, man. I I do not have a lot of confidence in the White Sox. I mean, you know, maybe they could finish it second, but I don't see them overcome the Los Angeles Dodgers in any type of division alignment if they're in the same division as the Dodgers. But Andrew, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Azenrek. And Azenrek is asking, Jim, which player's at-home workout video do you like best? And he adds, I am partial to Sean Doolittle employing his dog for weight-bearing exercises. I did enjoy that one. I think my favorite was Grayson Rodriguez, uh, speaking of Baltimore Orioles prospect, playing long toss over a lake in East Texas. I don't know if you saw that one. No, but I did not. Like long toss is, you know, it's impressive to watch guys do it on a field and, and you know, throwing like foul pole to foul pole. But putting an obstacle in between made it way more impressive to yeah. me. 
throwing a ball over a lake. Just saying. Yeah, that. having a carry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, you know, having, you know, facing the same thing in golf, you know, the same uh, obstacle, hazard, um, you know, thing to conquer mentally, you know, when you're in the tee box and, uh, you know, trying to think of everything besides hitting the ball in the water and still doing it. Uh, seeing just, you know, seeing those guys air it out and on target over it. Uh, yeah, really impressive. And would watch again. Yeah, that that's the crazy thing, right? When you're watching these workout videos, even if they're guys that you're that you don't think are top prospects or they're not well known to you, when you watch them do baseball drills, it, it's just so jaw dropping sometimes on the their natural ability on on their things that they can do. I don't see him doing a lot of workouts, but I am enjoying the in-home videos that Tim Anderson has been posting mm. uh, with his family. And, <laughs> you know, he's just a dad. And, you know, with his two young girls, I, I just uh, I enjoy seeing Tim Anderson in that light. It brings out the humanity in a athlete that we often judge for his on the field uh, performance. Uh, so, I mean, maybe that's the silver line with the coronavirus is we're starting to see the more human side of baseball players that we follow and we talk about quite often uh, posting what they're doing behind the scenes on social media. And I like that he said that he was as bored as anybody else. That's why <laughs> he was doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what else are you going to do? Stars. They're just like us. Exactly. Just like us. Uh, but yeah, thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for PO Socks. Again, if you like a question or topic that you'd like us to tackle on a future episode of the Socks Machine podcast, follow us on Twitter. We're at Socks Machine and help support the podcast and the website at patreon.com slash Socks Machine. And Jim, I, I forgot the total number, but we saw a surge in the amount of people that have signed up at Patreon uh, to help support Sox Machine. And that that is a great thing to see because uh, obviously, um, you know, other sports media outlets, there's furloughs, there's unfortunately layoffs, but we really do appreciate your guys' support uh, to help back yeah, us. Yeah, we're at, we're at 431, and yeah, I'll be honest, it surprised the hell out of me. Yeah. <laughs> In a really great way, but, you know, I was bracing for a dip and, having to, you know, figure out how to weather it. And it's been uh, a real surprise and a real honor. And we'll do what we can to live up to that. Yes. And again, uh, go to SoxMachine.com for daily stories. We have a new podcast as well. Our new game show, Nine Innings, which we've already had two grand prize winners, which is exciting. Uh, so if you like baseball trivia and you like game shows, if you subscribe to the Sox Machine podcast, you'll get both as far as our regular Sox Machine podcast, which we talk about all things baseball and the Chicago White Sox, um, but also our new baseball trivia game show, Nine Innings, which you can subscribe to the Sox Machine podcast in a number of ways, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and audioboom.com slash Sox Machine. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When you rely on the internet for everything... 
you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X-Fi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.